Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Warm Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. We'll use this one. I'll go old school preacher mode. Okay, you ready? All right, now I have to stand still. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Job has this, this interesting problem that happens, and that is God allows Job to go through something that no person should ever have to go through, not because God hates Job or because Job has something uh, wrong in his life, as his friends think, but the reason why God allows it to happen is because Satan comes to God in the first few chapters of the book of Job, and he has this conversation with God. You've, you're protecting Job. You're taking care of him more than, than you really should, and so God has to prove to Satan and to anyone who would ever read the book that that's not the case. And so he allows Satan a, a certain level of freedom to attack Job, to hurt Job emotionally, to take away his family, take away his possessions, and so forth. And in this, you have these conversations between Job's friends and Job. Over and over and over again, his friends come to him and say, you must have some kind of sin in your life. And Job says, no, I don't have any sin. And he says, well, no sin that, I, that isn't forgiven, because I've been faithfully offering sacrifices, not only to to God for myself, but also I've been offering sacrifices to, to God for, for my children just in case they've sinned. And his friends keep coming back to him over and over and over again, saying, you must have something wrong. And finally, Job snaps. We like to think that the story of Job is that he never sins. But I have a feeling that, that when we read these passages in 38, in chapter 38, you're going to see that Job believed he did sin. He snaps. And he says, God, if you're so good, if you're so loving, if you're so kind, why has all this stuff happened to me? And Job chapter 38 is God's answer. Job 38 verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me. In essence, God just told Job, all right, Job, stand up and put your big boy pants on. I'm going to ask you questions, and then you tell me if you can answer them. Since you want to be on my position, and since you think that you can do my job so much better than I can do my job, I'm going to just ask you some questions, and you tell me whether or not you, you think you can answer them. Where were you, verse 4, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or, verse 8, who shut the... The sea shut in the sea with doors. Verse 12 Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Job, can you make the sun come up and the, and the moon go away every morning? Do you have that power? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Verse 13 or verse 12 And caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Verse 16, have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Job didn't even know there were springs in the sea. In fact, just a little tidbit, historical tidbit, the man who found springs in the sea was in the 1800s, and the reason why he found them was because he was on his deathbed, he was extremely sick, and his nephew was reading Job 38 to him. And the quote is, well, if the Bible says it's there... It must be there. And he got better. 
And he went and he found that there are springs in the depths of the sea. So Job had no clue these things even existed. Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of the light? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Job, where does snow come from? Who has cleft a channel for the torrent of rain and a way of the, for the thunderbolt? Verse 25. He asked all these questions about, about natural phenomenon, about weather, about the, the skies. Verse 31. Can you bind the change of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion, the, the constellations in the sky? Can you lift your voice up to the clouds? Verse 34. Can you hunt the prey of the lion and satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Can you do these things, Job? He asked all these questions. Verse 9 of chapter 39. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your manger? All these questions. Job, I want you to get up and I want you to answer these questions for me. Because if you think you can do my job better than I can, here are some of the things you're going to have to do. And so he says all these questions. He asks all these questions. Verse 26 of chapter 39. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Spreads its wings toward the south. Did you, did you make the hawk able to fly? Did you set the parameters of the laws of physics so that a bird, which theoretically shouldn't be able to, can now do it because it, it bends the laws of physics and it's built in such a way that it can do that? Did you make all these things happen, Job? Verse 3 of chapter 40 is Job's first answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm not going to speak anymore. You've made your point, God. And God says, No, I'm not done making my point yet. Verse 6 of chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Notice, just for a second, we skip over that verse... A lot of times when we're reading the book of Job, God answered him out of a whirlwind. A whirlwind. They're having this conversation. Job says, I'm not going to answer anymore, God. I, I, I understand my place now. And God says, I'm not done talking. And he shows up in a hurricane to prove another point. And he speaks out of the whirlwind and says, dress for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me. Same thing he said before. Adorn yourself. Job, if you think you can do my job, you adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself in glory and splendor. The things that are just natural to who God is. Job, now that you're up and you're dressed and you're ready for action, can you make yourself glorious? Can you, can you make yourself majestic or have dignity? Then he talks about behemoth and leviathan, the the two animals that we talked about in Bible class. And then in chapter 42, this is where the rubber really meets the road. Job chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent 
in dust and ashes. So, Job has this conversation with God. And God says, in essence, Job, you don't have what it takes to do my job. In chapter 41, er, chapter 40, he even says, can you look at a person? Job, I want you to create the world, then put people on the world. Then I want to, you to look at your own creation and have to send them to hell because they, because they rejected the right way of living. Can you do that, Job? You don't, you don't have what it takes. God has always been everything that we need him to be. And the reason why the very first book written in our canon, in our text of the scriptures, the reason why it ends with this conversation is not only to record the life and, and trials and temptations of Job, but it's also to record just the fact that from the very foundation of the world, the very foundational writing of the scriptures, the first writing in the scriptures, written sometime probably a couple hundred years after the flood, God has always been everything that we need him to be. Isaiah 9 is a passage that will be quoted thousands upon thousands, maybe even millions of times this week. And it says this, Isaiah 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's, that's why God never changes. Hebrews 13, 8 says that God never changes. Why? Because he's always been everything we've ever needed him to be. He doesn't change because what we need never changes. Sure, times change and that sort of thing. And maybe, maybe our lives change. Maybe the circumstances of our lives change. But the fact is that God knows that we need the same thing now that we needed so long ago. That's why God... Paul is able to write, I know that the one that I've entrusted my life to is able to do far more exceeding and abundantly more than I could ever ask or imagine. Okay? So, I said all of that to say this. And I, I, I thought about, you know, I thought about having all of these different points. And I, I do have a lot of points. But I thought about going from passage to passage and making you flip hundreds of times today to, to show all the verses, but I'm going to try my best to put these verses into context. Because the fact is that God has never changed. And so, if He's everything that we've ever needed Him to be, the question isn't, can God do this? Can God help the fact that 39.5% of Russell County has no religious affiliation at all. The question isn't, it, can God help it? It's the question of, are we going to do our responsibility and our part to have some sort of influence in the lives of those people that are represented by just some numbers on a banner at the back of our church building? And, and I know I've mentioned it a thousand times, and I'm going to keep mentioning it. 2019, do you realize over the last week, we have people begging, begging 
to come to Columbus, Georgia, where, let's be honest, there is no easy way to get to this city. We have people begging to come to Columbus and to preach the gospel because they know that the fields are white to harvest, as Jesus said. And we have the, the responsibility, the problem, however you want to say it, the obligation to make sure that we're ready to be able to do what God needs us to do. Now, keep in mind that God doesn't need us to spread the gospel. He, he can do that in his providence where, the way, where, wherever he sees fit to do it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks about the fact that we have this truth in earthen vessels. Why, why did God give the word to mankind? Why can't Calvinism be true? Why can't the fact, why, why can't God just make us obey him? Or why can't God just speak to us and teach us the Bible instead of having people go and teach it to other people? I, I don't know the wisdom in that. I, I don't know every, every reason why God did that. But here's my thinking on this. We get something out of it. Maybe not, you know, a better reward. Maybe we don't, the, the number of baptisms that you have on your checklist doesn't make that, you know, Forrest, if you baptize 150 people in 2019 and I only baptize two, that doesn't mean that you get to go to a better place in heaven. I mean, you might want it, and maybe you can talk to God about that, but that's, that's between you and him. But why did God give the Bible to man instead of just doing the job himself? He didn't need us to do it. He could have done it himself. He did it himself for thousands of years before Jesus came. So why does he give it to us when Jesus comes and tell us that it's our job? It's because we get something out of it. Now, the question is, we have to be ready to do it. And so here in just a minute, we're going to talk about a couple um, characteristics of the people that, that did it in the New Testament. And then this afternoon, we're going to do the same thing. But here's what I want to point out to you. February 7th, there's a training course. You've probably heard of it a couple times. I'm going to keep saying it. Because the fact is that if you average those numbers, we're somewhere around 34% of people in the four counties that we live around don't have any religious affiliation at all. That's a softball when it comes to evangelism. The questions that everyone's scared of. What if they ask a question I don't know about? What if they say, well, I'll have to go ask my preacher. And then they bring their preacher to the next Bible study. Lee, what am I supposed to do then? I can't have a Bible study with a preacher. Those people don't have preachers. So you don't have to worry about that. And the question is, are we going to be ready to do it ourselves? And the reason why I keep bringing up the Fishers of Men course is because, I'll be frank with you, we don't have enough people signed up. I mean, it's going to happen whether it's just me and Tim Wilkes in the, in the annex doing it together. But for the size of the door that is open for our community, every person within 100 miles who claims to be a Christian should be at those classes. And so I'm going to keep saying it, not because I want to guilt you into it or anything like that. It's just simply because if we're going to do the job that is set in front of us, we have to prepare ourselves. 
And we have to fit these characteristics that we'll talk about here in just a second. But sometimes it also takes just having the guts to do it. And I didn't plan on doing this, but I'm just going to hang on a second. I'm just going to show you just a couple of the, the quotes that I got this past week about what Fishers of Men did for them, okay? I used Fishers of Men course to teach my wife's parents the gospel. That's a guy named Jeff from Trenton, Tennessee. It helped, me set, it helped set me on fire for evangelism and helped me out of my comfort zone. It's a man from Sylvester, Georgia. Fishers of Men was the tool that God used to convict me to leave law enforcement and begin preaching the gospel full time. It gave me the tools to have conversations I had been avoiding my entire life. Fishers of Men moved me out of the box and into the world where I would meet Jesus and his saving work. Fishers of Men helps you overcome the anxiety of evangelism because it gives you a simple method for teaching others. This one's my favorite. A woman from Eaton, Eatonton, Georgia. It has helped me produce two salvations through me personally because of God. If we're going to do the job that God commanded us. In fact, if you look at passages like the book of Joshua. Joshua never just imagined that God would do the job for him. He got ready. He prepared himself. He sent in spies. He got ready for a fight. And when God took the fight away, he was thankful for that. We have to do the same. So here are four characteristics. We'll talk about a couple more this afternoon. But here are four characteristics of people in the New Testament that we have to have if we're going to be effective in teaching people about Jesus Christ. Number one is a good heart. That kind of comes pretty naturally. First Peter 3 and verse 21. Baptism is the answer of a good heart toward God. So if we're going to be a Christian to begin with, we have to have a good heart. But also... Y'all ever heard of Penn and Teller? I'm sure you have, right? And some of you may know the illustration that I'm about to share with you, but Penn, Teller doesn't talk in public, but Penn does. And Penn talks a lot in public. And Penn is very, very adamantly opposed to religion. And a few years ago, I think it was about 10 years ago now, um, he recorded a video where... I, it's interesting to me when atheists um, know more about who God is and righteousness than, than Christians. And Penn of Penn & Teller recorded a video where he basically asked, how much do you have to hate me to, know that, to, to believe that Jesus is Christ and that he saved you from your sins and not tell me about it? We have to have a good heart. We have to be willing to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, Romans 12 and verse 15. We have to have humility. Uh, this, um, this is something that I struggle with, and I think, you know, the fact is that the Bible does the work for you. The Word of God is what converts, not how you present it or how... And, and I, I fall victim to that a lot of times because it's my job to effectively communicate that book that you're holding in your hands to you so that you have some way to follow it and maybe some application or maybe just some, some deeper thought into the text or something like that. But it's my job to effectively communicate it. And if I don't effectively communicate it, then I have, then I have failed my job. Can we admit that? Okay, good. I don't care if you can because I'm going to anyways. All right, but... 
The fact of the matter is that it doesn't matter how we communicate it. The fact of the matter is, is that that book can do its job if we'll just put it in the hands of people. It can do its job for us. But sometimes we allow our lack of humility to be the one thing that keeps people from reading the book. In Luke 18, the the parable of the, the two men at the temple is recorded. If you want to turn there, Luke 18, verse number 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me just ask you a practical, just let's be really honest with each other right now, okay? If you're standing at the temple and you're new to Judaism, you don't have any, you're not a follower of Judaism, you're, you know, you're a Gentile, but you're looking into it. Maybe you want to become a proselyte, which is a person who converted to Judaism in the Old Testament. Maybe you want to do that. And you're standing there and you see those two people. Which one's more likely to be the person that you ask about Judaism? I worry that sometimes Christians, members of the church, think that we have figured it out so much that we're that Pharisee, even though we don't say the same words. Well, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. You know, I I will go this week to have Christmas fellowship with people in my family who don't go to church anymore because the church is full of hypocrites. That's their exact words. And this morning, they're probably at IHOP or something because the church is full of hypocrites. Good. Every one of us sitting in this room and me standing here is a hypocrite at times. And if you don't believe it, it's because... You're a hypocrite. The fact is, we're all, we're all in the same boat. And if we're going to teach people about Jesus Christ, we have to be humility. We have to be humble. We have to have humility. We have to know that not everything that we do is, is 100% on the up and up. There are many times when we're hypocrites. There are many times when we fail. And that's okay. As long as we're walking in the light as he is in the light. This is the one that really I struggled with for a lot of years. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The famous passage on the Great Commission. Probably the most famous, even though it's recorded in all of the gospel accounts. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 seems to be the one that everybody likes because it says all authority has been given to me. And then it says something 
kind of weird at the end about him being with us until the end of the age. And that's the one that everybody likes to quote. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. The age there is the miraculous age. What he's saying is you're going to have the miraculous abilities until the end of that time. And then when those times went away, that doesn't mean that Jesus left us. It just He's speaking specifically to his disciples and saying you're going to have an ability that not everybody after you is going to have. But Matthew 28, 19 and 20 has that word. Verse 20, the first word of verse 20, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. The word teaching there is didasco. And it essentially means this. To impart instruction. Like a father would, would instruct his child. It doesn't mean to argue. It's not the word for debate. It's the word for teach. Is there a, a need for debate at times? Is there a need to, to maybe sometimes be a little bit more forceful and, and take their arguments and look at those arguments and, and see whether or not they fit? Absolutely. But most people aren't trying to debate you. They just don't understand. The vast majority of people aren't trying to have a theological debate about the ramifications of salvation through immersion. They just don't understand what baptism is. The vast majority of people aren't trying to have a debate about premillennialism and, and eschatology, which means when Jesus comes back. They just don't understand what the judgment day is going to be. We can't be contentious. Is there a time to argue? Is there a time for debate? Absolutely. But not every time. Finally, number number whatever. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6. The story of the church at Corinth is a pretty interesting one. Corinth is founded by Paul somewhere on one of his missionary journeys. And then he goes back through a couple times. But he wants to go more. It's, it's almost, if you read the books of First and Second Corinthians, it's almost as if Paul wished that he had stayed there longer to begin with. And then when he leaves, he knows that he needs to get back because Corinth is in a different situation. Corinth is in a situation where th these people have not grown up overwhelmingly religious. They don't live in an overwhelming religious world. And so they kind of, well, they're... they're they're at a disadvantage because of that, but they're also at a disadvantage because the temptation, the level of temptation around them is such that many of them are going to give up fairly quickly. And so just a few years after he leaves Corinth, he has to write 1 Corinthians that says, okay, guys, listen, sit down. You really shouldn't hate each other. You should wait to have the Lord's Supper until everybody shows up to worship because that's not being very Christian 
You shouldn't look at sins and think that you can just allow them to happen in the congregation because what that is doing is it's allowing you to think that this is okay and then tomorrow you're going to think that one step farther is okay and then one step farther after that and then one step farther after that. And I know you don't understand these miraculous powers that you've been given, but here's the catch. Just because you can speak in tongues does not mean that you're super Christian. All these problems arise just just months after Paul leaves Corinth. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he's talking about the church there, and he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And he's speaking in the past tense. God gave the growth. I came and preached the gospel. Apollos stayed and, and converted you and helped you grow, and, and God gave the increase. If you ask me, Paul, they, there's a lot more increase that needs to happen in Corinth. These people are about the most immature Christians I've ever met. I mean, I've seen some pretty immature Christians over my, over my uh, short ten years of preaching. I've never seen it happen, but I've heard of congregations. Now, you'll love this. This is an actual true story. There is a congregation somewhere in these, these United States. I'm not going to tell you where. Where if you come in, one side of the pews is this mauve color. Like we have pink. That's pink. I know, it, I know it's called mauve. But in 2018, we call it pink. Okay? It matches Miss Jimmy's little thingy. Anyways. All right. It's pink. One side of the church building is pink. And the other side of the church building is green. Actually green. Because they got in a fight. And they didn't like each other anymore. So everybody who wanted pink pews sits on this side, and everybody who wanted green pews sits on this side. And you think I'm kidding, but I, I'm not going to tell you where it is, but I could. And I could probably give you the cell phone number of the preacher who's preaching there right now. I've met some pretty immature Christians before, but I think Corinth has it covered. The fact is, we have to be patient. New Christians are not going to have it perfect as soon as they get out of the water. I'm going to tell you one story and then I'll leave it to you. Um, when I was converted, I was 19 years old in college. And, um, and we went on just months after. Uh, let's see. It was about a month and a half after I was converted. We went on a mission trip to Darien, Georgia. You've probably heard talk about the mission trip to Darien because it really settled my faith. But... This is one story I've never told you about. Um, as we're driving in this 15-passenger van, stuffed in there like sardines because we're college students, and anytime you have a college mission trip, people think college, it's just a college student. They, like, never take baths, and they can sleep on the ground, so we can just, you know, we can go as cheap as possible. So we slept in the church building on the pews. We took one 15-passenger van for 16 people, with all of our luggage. We slept on the pews. And the preacher at the Darien Church of Christ. Because the congregation was, was really just getting started. They didn't have a lot of money to put us up. And so we decided that's what we could do. We could sleep on the pews and that sort of thing. The preacher installed. They had like what my office is. And the preacher installed a shower up there. So that we could take showers. On our, gospel, on our campaign. And so we're riding around in this 15-passenger van, stuffed in there like sardines. And I said, 
you know, I don't, I don't remember how the conversation started, but I said, you know, I don't really see a problem with like a Christian going to like prom or some other kind of, you know, dance in high school. I mean, sure, there's a lot of sin that happens there, but you know, it, it doesn't seem like it'd be that big a deal. A month and a half after I was converted, by the way. And one of the people turned around and read me the riot act from the front row. I was in the back row from the front row of the 15-passenger van. Just lit me up one side and down the other. You, that's, that's the whole, most horrible thing you could ever do. And our college minister at the time, who my son is named after, turned around and said, You know what's the most horrible thing you could do? What you just did. He's been a Christian for four weeks. And she went, I'm really sorry. And I said, that's okay. I know why proms are wrong now. But see, Christians don't get it right every time. New Christians don't get it right most of the time. And if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to teach people about Jesus, we have to be humble. We have to know that God is going to do the work, but we need to be able to do it too. We need to do our part. And it also, we need to know that it's not going to look perfect all of the time. And that's perfectly okay. It's exactly the way it was meant to be. Paul wrote to a church with so many problems that if they were in our city, nobody would fellowship them. He wrote to that church and he said, God gave the growth in past tense. And then he said, here are the problems you need to fix. And in chapter 1, he calls them saints. In chapter 15, he talks about how they've been resurrected with Jesus Christ through baptism and how at the judgment day they'll be resurrected with Jesus Christ. And then he still talks about all the problems they had. We have to be patient. If you need to become a Christian this morning, uh, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. Do not think that you have to have everything right. But you have to know some things. You have to know that Jesus died on the cross for you. You have to know what that means. You have to know what it means for you and what that tells you you should do. And then if you're willing to do all those things and be baptized, then we're willing to help you with that. Um, but it's not, it's not just getting wet. It's not just putting on a funny-looking robe and getting down in some water and having someone put you underwater. It's much, much more than that. And so if you're ready to become a Christian, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. And if you are a Christian, let me say this. We have a lot of work to do. In our cities, and if you're visiting from Texas, there's a lot of work to do out there too. And the fact is that if we aren't ready to do the job, we can't expect God to do our job for us. So if you need encouragement, maybe you need to repent of sins or something like that, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you as well. Let us know if you're subject to that invitation. I'm not going to keep you for too long, but I wanted to finish... Um, the thought from this morning about some of the characteristics that uh, that we need to have if we're going to be able to, to teach people about the, the truth of Jesus Christ and some of the, the characteristics that we always need to be striving for and so forth. Um, you know, one of the scariest things you can ever do, I'm told, is to stand up and speak in front of people. Apparently, normal human beings do not like it. 
I have no problem with it, but I like talking, so that's probably why. But, um, you know, it, it genuinely is something that, that some people are scared of to talk, either in front of groups or even privately, especially when it's about Jesus Christ. When it's, when it's about religion, we live in the South, which I don't know if y'all have noticed, but there are a couple things that you're just not supposed to talk about, politics, religion. Nowadays, you can talk about politics all you want, as long as it's behind a keyboard, and then when you get in person, you're not supposed to mention it anymore, and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it is something that some people are genuinely afraid of, and we we're talking about uh, the, the opportunities that our congregation has over the next year uh, to, to do just that, and so I wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit. You know, um, it is it is scary to some. It is fearful to some for to speak to people, but especially, I don't know if y'all have ever experienced this, but um, you don't have to say it out loud, so don't worry about it. But if you're if you know that you need to talk to someone about Jesus and, and you need to, to try to teach them the gospel, but you also know that, that they may know some history about you that might taint the way that they see what you're saying because they know how you used to be and so forth. Um, uh, I've been, uh, I kind of mentioned it last week, but I've been talking with a friend uh, from back in high school, and um, when we first started the conversation, she said something to the effect of, uh, does, it, does anyone back home know? And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, does anyone back home know that you're a preacher? And I said, well, yeah, a couple do, I guess. I mean, like, I, I, I didn't buy a billboard in Arab or anything, but it is Arab, so, you know, if you sneeze twice, somebody's going to know about it. And she said, it's just, it's just kind of interesting that, like, you would be a preacher. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Miss Jimmy? <laughs> um, if y'all didn't know, I, I, I wish I had, uh, no, I don't wish. When I was growing up, I had hair about as long as Brooks. I wore all black T-shirts and blue jeans. I drove a black truck, and I listened to music where you couldn't tell what the people were actually saying because they were yelling so loud. I mean, they were angry that they were... Usually people are pretty excited and happy when they're playing music. These people sounded like they were mad that they had to play music. I don't know. Anyways, and she said, it's just interesting that you are now a preacher. And I said, well, it is kind of interesting, isn't it? There's a, there's a fear in, in sometimes that maybe if I say something they know something that happened in the past, or they know who I used to be, and so that may not that may not go over too well if I try to teach them the gospel. Or even outside of that, even those of us who didn't have um, pasts like that, you know, you've always heard the, the, the thing about, negative about Christianity that, well, you know, Christianity has a very checkered past. I mean, have you all ever heard of the Crusades before? The time when the Roman Catholic Church sent soldiers to the Promised Land, to Canaan, to, to Israel, modern-day Israel, to win back the land from the Muslims. And they did basically the same thing that the Muslims did. The Muslims began by saying, you either convert to Islam or 
or we're going to kill you. And the Crusades said the same thing. You convert to quote-unquote Christianity or we're going to kill you. And people love bringing that up. It's interesting that the people in the New Testament, the vast majority of them that were so effective, that were so influential in the preaching of the gospel, that were so faithful, that some of the, some of the, most, some of the most stalwart Christians in the New Testament had some of the worst past. I mean, of course, Paul comes to mind in, in his uh, persecution of the church in Acts 8 and 9. But even, I mean, even a follower of Jesus during the three years was known as Simon the what? The, no, not Simon the sorcerer. Si- the, the, the disciple, what was his name? Simon the z- zealot. Zealot. A zealot was a terrorist for Judaism. It was a terrorist of the Jews. It was a Jew, a zealot was a Jew who would kill you if you didn't convert to Judaism or if you tried to stop Judaism. The zealots would, the zealots were the ones that we talked about last Wednesday when the Romans put the eagle at the pinnacle of the temple. The zealots were the ones that broke into the temple at night took the eagle down, smashed it into a million pieces, and killed anyone that got in their way. And yet that man is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, the people in the New Testament had pasts and histories that were horrible. And Christianity is, is somewhat similar. In Christianity, I'm using that in, in a broad sense. There have been things done in the name of Christ over the last 2,000 years that are drastically different than what he taught us to do, right? The Crusades. Um, there, there are ways that we have treated people in the name of Christ that are drastically different than his teachings and drastically different than his personality and so forth. And so this is just interesting to me. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. There are only two times that Jesus Christ used the word church that we have recorded for us. Now, did he use that word more often? I'm positive of it, but there's only two that we have recorded in the New Testament for us. One is Matthew 16, where he says, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not stop it. It's not going to prevent against it, prevail against it. Meaning, he's going to build the church with his death, and even though... Satan and the gates of hell are trying to stop him from doing that. The, their way of stopping it were, was the exact way that caused it to happen. His dying established Christianity. It established salvation for mankind. Without him dying, we don't have anything that we, that we believe or anything that we practice. But then the only other time that Jesus used the word church in his teachings at least that we have recorded, is Matthew 18, verse 17, where it says this, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's in the context of what do we do when so-and-so sins against me? Anytime you have Christians in a room together for long enough, Anytime you have people in, in a room together long enough, Becca has been um, at her parents now since Thursday. 
and she called me this morning because JD is apparently not sleeping very well because he's in a new place and his Gigi and Papa are there and he can get away with stuff, basically, you know. So he's not sleeping well. And she called me this morning and said, I think we may need to come home. And I said, you got one more night until I, like, I'm coming up there, I'm meeting you, we're going to have Christmas, and then we're driving back. She said, yeah, but I think I need to come home. And I said, why? And she said, I think, I think J.D. has outstayed his welcome, right? Because it was like 4 a.m., and he was screaming bloody murder. Anytime you have people in a room together, eventually we're going to get on each other's nerves. Anytime you have a church, eventually there are going to become problems where two people don't agree on something. This morning we talked about the phenomenon of the, the church with two colors of carpet and pews, right? You're going to have disagreements. And so Jesus is teaching about that. Isn't it interesting, side note, that Jesus knew the problems that the church was going to face before the church is ever even established? It's like he's, you know, all-knowing or something. Anyways, so... He's talking about this problem of what happens when we sin against each other. What happens when two people have a disagreement? And he says, if he refuses to... So, you're supposed to go to that person. If he doesn't listen to you, you take another person with you. If he doesn't listen to that other person, then you, you take it, verse number 17. If he, doesn't refi- if he refuses to listen to them, rather, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Okay, there's ramifications of that and how we treat people and how we treat Christians and everything else. I just want to point out, Jesus, before the church is ever even established, knows that sometimes Christians do not act like Christians. Even more so, he knows that sometimes when those Christians don't act like Christians, it doesn't mean they're just not in the church anymore. It means that there needs to be something to be fixed. But the fact is that the, the old adage goes that the church is not a hospital. Uh, the church is a hospital for the broken, not a museum of the perfect. Jesus knew that there were, there were going to come times when Christians didn't act like Christians. When people didn't follow Jesus' words, when they didn't follow his truth. And so there are going to be times when... People look at the church and they look at Christianity and they look at what you're trying to talk to them about and they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that because, as we talked about this morning, there are hypocrites there. Maybe they say you're the hypocrite because of something you've done in the past or so forth. And the important thing to remember is that that is the purpose of the church. If we were all perfect, Romans says, without sin there is no law. Without law, there is no sin. If, if we're all perfect, there's no reason for us to follow Jesus. We're doing a pretty good job at, our, at it ourselves. And because there is a law, because he did give us the truth, that means that sometimes we're not going to follow it because we're going to try to do it our way and so forth. And so if we're going to do that, if we're going to show them that that it is okay for people to not be perfect, there's three characteristics that I saved for this afternoon for us to talk about. Number one comes uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
verse 31 says this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show them, uh, sorry, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And this problem of the church at Corinth, they're, they're thinking that if you speak in tongues, you're some, some, some type of super Christian. And he says, you need to earnestly desire, you need to earnestly desire the better gifts or the higher gifts. He's talking about prophecy. Because back then, they didn't have a Bible. And if there's one of the miraculous gifts that are recorded in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit gave to mankind before the foundation and writing of the Bible, if there's one that is more useful to the furtherance of the gospel than any other, it's not the resurrection from the dead. Right? That proves, if, if, I, if I say something and I don't have the Bible yet because it's not been written, and I tell you something, if I raise someone from the dead, you're probably going to believe what I have to say, right? Either that or you're going to run away scared to death. I'm probably going to pick the second option. But it, that one shows you that whatever's being said is true. Well, how did you get whatever was being said? Prophecy. If the tongues is a, is a, is a pretty... It's a pretty, pretty amazing gift to just be able to speak in a language that you've never learned before. I mean, I wish I could have seen people do that. They, they've never learned, you know, the language of this city, and they go to that city, and they start preaching the gospel, and, and they can speak that language without, without ever knowing it. That's amazing. But what are they, where are they getting what they're saying from? Prophecy. All of them come out of prophecy. And so he says, I want you to desire the higher gift, the one that, that causes everything else to kind of flow in. If you don't have God's word prophecy, if you don't have God's word, there's no point in any of the other gifts. So you don't need to think that tongues is somehow better than the rest of them because tongues only happens because of prophecy. But I want to focus in on that one word earnestly desire the higher gifts. Why does Paul say that they need to desire? It's the Greek word that we translate a lot of times, zeal. Why does Paul say that we need to have zeal for the higher gifts? Is it just because he wants you to, he wants you to really understand how great of a Christian you are? No. Because if you're going to preach the gospel... If you're going to teach people about Jesus, you have to have zeal. You have to. And the reason why he says be desirous or be zealous for the higher gifts isn't so that they can get a notch on their belt. It's so that they can have the opportunity. Have y'all ever heard me pray this? Lord, I pray that you will help us and you will open doors for us to preach the gospel. Y'all ever heard me say that before? I say it in almost every prayer. I have, to, I have to work really hard not for it to be a vain repetition because I say it so often. But we have to be zealous. We have to desire the opportunity to speak God's word. And that's why he says, I want you to be zealous of this. Revelation 3 and verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and dis discipline. So be zealous and repent. So zeal is seen in 
Preaching the gospel, it's, zeal is seen in us repenting when there's something wrong. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. If we're going to do what God tells us to do, we have to be zealous for the right reason. We can't be slothful in zeal. We can't, we can't want something so that it makes it easier. Do you know how tempting it is for preachers at times to want to evangelize simply because they want to put more people in the pews? Because then it makes it easier? This morning, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? I don't feel so good. Did y'all notice? I'm like a little baby. I whine, okay? I understand. I whine when I'm sick. This morning, well, last night, I started not feeling good, and Ron texted me and said, hey, we're still out of town, not going to make it back in time for worship tomorrow. I need you to cover Bible class. And I went. Great. It's Saturday night at like 5.30, Ron. I can't call anybody. That means it's on me. And I like started having a little pity party for myself. Y'all tell him this when he gets back, okay? I started having a little pity party for myself. And I thought, I need to go convert like 50 guys that way. You know, I can tell all of y'all at all at the same time. Every one of y'all have a Bible class ready at all times. And I may call Saturday night at 6 o'clock. But I felt bad calling y'all. So I said, I'll just, we'll just watch a video for Bible class this morning. Because I felt bad. You know how easy it is for preachers to say, we just need to convert more people because then it makes our jobs easier. It does. It does. I have always only preached in small churches small churches. This is a medium-sized church, but I've only ever preached in churches this size or smaller. It gets easier with more people. That's being slothful in zeal. How, how How can normal, I hate using that phrase, normal Christians, not preachers, be slothful in zeal? Well, let's just say, for instance, that you want to convert someone. But when you really boil it down to it, you just kind of want to convert them because then it makes you look good. I mean, it's 2009. I went to the West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence. Well, no, this is West Huntsville Church of Christ before they moved to Providence in Huntsville, Alabama. And I walked up to the door and a guy met me and he said, what's your name? And I said, Lee Snow. And he said, where are you from? And I said, I, I go to school in Jacksonville, Alabama. And he went, oh. and I went, what? And he said, you're the guy. And I said, what are you talking about? You're the guy in Jacksonville, Alabama. And I was like, well, yes, I am. How you doing? And he said, you're the guy that's converted like 50 people. And I said, no, that's Dalton. See, we get kind of accolades, right? That's slothful in zeal. We need to be zealous for the right reason. We need to be zealous for the higher gifts because it allows us to teach. Now, we don't have miraculous gifts anymore. Nobody has the miraculous gifts of prophecy anymore. Nobody has the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues or raising the dead or anything like that because 1 Corinthians 13 says that those ceased when the Bible was completed. And so if that's the case, 
What should we be zealous of? That book in your hand. See, the, the glorious thing is, we don't have to have miracles anymore. Everyone wants to see a miracle. Everyone wants to see it. But the fact is, we, we have something so much better. 1 Corinthians 13 says that we have the Bible, and we don't have things in part anymore. We have completeness. So we have something better. So number one, we have to have zeal. Number two, we have to have zeal for the Bible. We have to, we have to be zealous to know it. Proverbs 19 verse 2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. I wonder if there's some people that speak on behalf of God without any knowledge. Their feet just go too fast, and they get running, and they just say something, and they don't have any clue what they're saying. They just say it because they, they got ahead of themselves. I wonder how many, how many false religious ideas have started simply because of that. Pretty good amount. And then finally, of course, if we're going to teach people about Jesus, we have, to, we have to follow him. We have to know the book. We have to be zealous about the book and zealous for the right reasons. And then we have to be a Christian. Um, that goes without saying, but Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they what? They both fall into the ditch, right? We have to be a Christian. We have to make sure that we are correct. Now, does that mean that we're going to be perfect? No, we've already talked about that. There's, you're not ever going to be perfect. You can be faithful without being perfect. You're never going to be perfect, but you can be faithful. But we have to be faithful. Otherwise, when a person says, I don't want to go to church because there's hypocrites there, and I say, yes, that's absolutely the point. We want the hypocrites to be there because maybe they'll get something. Maybe something will get through their thick skulls, and they'll learn the gospel, and they'll start following it. But if I'm the hypocrite, and I'm saying that about you, there's a problem, right? I'm not saying any of y'all are hypocrites. You get what I'm saying. If, if I am not trying, and I try to go tell someone that they should be trying, that's the, that's the dangerous type of hypocrite. The one that is oblivious to my own problems. Christianity is hard not because there's so many things you have to do. I mean, if you had to write a list of things you have to do in order to stay faithful to Christ, most of those haves are actually going to be in the negative. You have to stay away from blank. You have to stay away from this person. You have to not do this, right? If you have to make a list of active things that you have to do, it's very, very few. Encourage one another teach people about, people about Jesus Christ, worship God. I mean, if you think of some more, let me know after worship. But those are the three that came to mind when I, was, when I was thinking this over. If you have to write a list of things you have to do, Christianity is pretty easy. The hard part comes in, in the personal self-examination phase, where we get into those, Christianity means that I have to stay away from blank, or stay away from this person. That's the difficult part. And the only way you do that is self-examination. 
The only way you know those things, the only way you know what we talked about uh, this morning in Bible class, that temptation that you need to stay away from is self-examination to see I've been caught up in that and I need to get away from that. That's the difficult part. And if we don't, and we're trying to teach people about, people about Jesus, and we don't have that self-examination, then what it boils down to is, I don't really care about my salvation. I don't really care about being faithful to God. But you should, so you go do it. Do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work in, in parenting. It doesn't work in leadership. It doesn't work in evangelism. It doesn't work anywhere to think that I can just do whatever I want and you're supposed to be this perfect person and I'm going to tell you all your faults. I mean, that's kind of in essence, you have a beam in your eye and you're trying to get the speck out of the other person's eye, right? So in order to, be, to teach people about Jesus, we have to be faithfully following him. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, absolutely not. But it does mean that we're going to have to try to be faithful. We're going to have to walk in the light as he is in light. If there's someone here that needs to become a Christian, I am going to tell you, I will be the first one. If, I have, if, I, if no one has ever told you this, I'll be the first one to ever tell you. Okay? Sometimes Christians don't act like Christians. We should expect each other to act like Christians. We should help each other act like Christians. But we should also understand that sometimes it just doesn't happen. But if we're not baptized believers in Jesus Christ, we haven't had our sins washed away, and we're trying to be good people, nowhere in the Bible does it say a good person is following God. What it says is, a person who believes and is baptized will be saved. And that person, when they fall, when they, when they stumble, when they do something dumb and they sin, they have forgiveness. But there's no, there's no inkling that, that a person outside of Christ has that forgiveness yet. And the only way to be in Christ is to be baptized for the remission of your sins. So if you want to do that this afternoon, we're, we're willing and able to help you with that. Maybe you need to study more. Let us know that as well. If you need to repent of sins, or you just need encouragement and prayers and so forth, then we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. You can let us know any of that as we do that.